Hey guys, Jack here, and it is our 50th episode. Uh, for those of you who have been with us from the beginning, and those of you who have joined us along the way, thank you so much for being a Just Hands listener. It really, really means a lot to us to see people listen to our work. Uh, obviously, that makes it all worth it. We've had a really, really great time producing all these episodes, uh, but without you guys, uh, we wouldn't still be doing it. So thank you again. Also, uh, it's not just our 50th episode, it's our first post-Greg Raymer event episode, and I'll report on the event. It was a blast. Uh, thank you so much to all our participants. Thank you to Greg. Real quick, we apologize to everyone who turned into the stream. There were a few issues. It was sort of cutting in and out. The good news is we've got the complete video uh, without any issues up on YouTube. There's a link to it in the show notes. Be sure to check it out. It's about four hours of really awesome play and commentary. Definitely, definitely worth listening to. Final thing, we've got Will Kasuf on the podcast. We're not talking about the main event at all, uh, but we are talking about our tournament at hand, and it's a little bit confusing how many big blinds Will has. At the beginning, he said he has 85. Uh, during the editing process, we cut out a part where we sort of realized that he actually had 75 big blinds. So at a certain point in the podcast, uh, you'll hear us talking as if Will has 75 big blinds and not 85 and that is true. He has 75. All right. Enjoy the episode, and we will see you guys next week. Hello, Zach. Hello, Jack. Are you doing well on this beautiful Ohio day? Doing great. Just made myself some, some mushroom tea. <coughs> Couldn't be doing better. Well, it's not just a beautiful Ohio day. Do you want to introduce our guest? Today, we have none other than Nine High Like a Boss. Some of you know him by his birth name, Will Kasuf recent deep runner in the 2016 main event how are you doing today william i'm doing good zach yeah thanks for having me on thank you jackson as well of course we're glad to have you you've had a lot of coverage in the media lately but we just want to talk strategy so we hear you've got a hand for us uh it was the super stack in london which is a monthly tournament uh the binds are 170 pounds in total uh usually gets around 500 players and around 80 80,000 pound prize pool and 20,000 pounds uh, top prize so it's pretty juicy for a 150 pound tournament uh so yeah that, that was uh, the tournament then it was last month uh when i got involved uh in a coup against this uh so-called villain on the table a middle-aged oldish guy who you'd probably look at and you think oh stereotypically that he it'll be fairly tight play fairly abc uh, but he did anything but play abc and he tried to mix it up which uh, was really a, a challenge for me because he was on my direct left um uh, throughout the tournament so i was out out of position to him in pretty much every hand um have you so played yeah, with I, him before this tournament i hadn't no it was the first time uh, I, I played with him but i noticed from previous hands he's played and he was quite aggressive and lo- loved to make some check raise moves himself uh, and loved, loved to get involved a lot, like a lot often than not. Um, he was showing down, um, you know, fairly marginal hands that he was getting involved in in three bet pots. So it looked like he, he wanted, he came to play. He wasn't there just sit, uh, sit tight and fold, you know, just just fire one bullet. He was willing to re-enter if he had to. He was there to have a punt. He was there to get a get a stack. So that's one way, one way of playing a tournament, I guess. And how many, how many hours at that point have you have you played with this guy? Uh, it was, it was with, it was. Fairly early on in the tournament, so probably just over an hour, hour and a half. So, you know, in that hour, hour and a half, you probably saw no more than like 35, 40 hands. About what percentage of those hands do you think this guy was involved in? Uh, more than 50%, definitely. I'll say like wow. 60, okay. 70. But the blinds were quite low at that time, so I think 
he wasn't the only one. I think a lot of people were involved because it's a 30k stack on a 30 minute clock and the blinds start at 25.50. So you can imagine when it goes raise, three bet, whatever, it's going to go call, 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 call because everyone wants to see a flop, 7-8 suited, 9-10, jack-10 jack suited. No one's folding to, to any kind of three bet when, when the blinds are so small. So that's what creates a lot of action. That's why I don't generally like myself to start tournaments uh, right from the beginning. Um, because you can't really protect your head, especially you get something like Ace and Kings, and there's a bet, and you do a big three bet, and and, and it goes five ways to the flop. You know, it's not going to play well um, out of position uh, in a five way coup, just holding uh, Ace or Kings, even though you have you know the strongest uh, starting hand and hold them. Um, so, but that seems to be the way it goes uh, because there's a lot of play uh, earlier on. A lot of people have chips, a lot of people are deep, and that's why people are getting involved in a lot of lot more hands than they normally would in the latter stages or middle stage of a tournament. So you're saying you don't like starting at like the very beginning because people just keep calling? In a way, that's that's like one way of looking at it. Obviously, the plus side is you can accumulate chips uh, quickly. People want to spew off more. People want to have a, have a punt, uh, willing to re-enter if they bust out, willing to gamble more. Uh, so there's that advantage. The disadvantage, obviously, like I just highlighted, if you get a big holding like Ace or Kings early on in, in the first couple of levels, it's, it's hard to protect your hand because no one folds. Even if you do a big three bet, it's going to be cool, cool, cool and go five, way, five ways to the flop. It's hard to protect, protect your hand and how do you play the streets uh, with four other players stacked behind you post-flop. Uh, it, it's going to be uh, a, a quite tricky and you can end up doing half your stack as well as you know doubling up or, or uh, um, adding more, more than 50% to your stack. So it can, it can go both ways. Um, but I like to like play like, end tournaments generally up like level three, level four of a tournament. I think the blinds are slightly higher. People respect raises more. People respect three bets more. Uh, people won't just be calling off with any two cards just to peel and see a flop and get lucky. So yeah, I think it, I, I prefer myself uh, coming in and starting later into a tournament. I'm more focused then. I play more disciplined, more tight myself. And um, yeah, I, I, I think you, you can protect your hand more and you, and you get more respect for your raises uh, after the first, first few levels compared to level one. Okay. Uh, so having seen this guy play a ton of hands in the early stages, when you get to this hand about an hour and a half in, do you remember what level it was? I guess it'd be level three or four at this point. I think I came, I came in late myself. So, uh, I mean, I got moved to that table, uh, I think, in level three. So by the time I got involved uh, in okay. a big pop with him, uh, was level six, which was the final level before the end of late, late reg and re-entry. Right. Okay. So at this point... Do you think his range is significantly tighter pre-flop compared to what you saw in the first couple levels when the blinds were a lot lower compared to the stack side? Just to um, try and understand what, how this player is going to be playing uh, yeah, in this particular I, hand. I don't think he, he cared whether the, whether we were level 1 or level 6. I think he, he seemed to be playing uh, a lot of hands. I think uh, other, people had, uh, <coughs> other players had picked up on it and had told me when he went to the bathroom. Um, to uh, that he he'd been quite active and he had a stack and he was he was up and down like a yo-yo. <coughs> He's getting involved in hand, winning at showdown, losing at showdown, uh, with so many uh, marginal hands. So I had this kind of like info on him and this kind of like profile on him that he's this kind of like loose aggressive uh, kind of player who loved to mix up, wanted to have a gamble, wanted to have a punt and accumulate chips uh, quickly in the tournament. Wasn't afraid to get his chips in and re-enter if he had to. So he had that kind of like loose kind of like uh, crazy image if you like that he was there to okay. play, and there to fold. All right, so let's uh, let's set up the hand in question. Uh, where were you seated? And so he was on your left. I was in the big blind. Uh, this uh, hand in question, yeah, yeah. I had about eighty-five uh, big blinds at the uh, start of that hand, I think. So okay, so this villain is under the gun. Yeah. Uh, all right. So what was the pre-flap action? Okay, so uh, the action's on him. Obviously, he's under the gun. He opens um, like 
three three x under the gun, just under three x under the gun, uh, and there was three callers uh, before me. Uh, I looked down and I saw uh, nine six of clubs, nine high like a boss, and I thought, right, I'm getting good odds here. To peel, see a blob. Uh, so I called and and made it up. So so okay. when, so what do you think his raising range looks like under the gun, given what you've observed so far? Okay, it's so raising under the gun. Yeah, normally you're perceived to be uh, fairly have a fairly tight range there, uh, opening with any pocket pair, um, any kind of like Broadway cards, and any big aces like ace king, ace queen, even ace jack suited, for example. He can open with any two there. He's shown to be like a loose aggressive uh, player, but because he's raised under the gun, I think he'd get more respect from that. That he's opening on the gun that he could this time have a, a big holding because he was playing so many hands he could have anything so people were scared to like um come over the top and three bet him especially when they're in position uh, unless they had a very strong hold of themselves they're happy to just peel uh see a flop in position and try and uh outplay him or outflop him in, in position and play their hands that way without bloating the pot too much uh so i think when he raises there he could have any two but i think a lot of people were willing to get involved uh in the hand wait um, wait wait in, so in I'm hearing kind of two divergent things. You're saying he can have any two there, but he probably has like aces, like bet, like better aces, ace jack suited. Like about about what percentage of hands do you think he's opening there? Like I, I don't think you would say he's opening like literally a hundred percent of hands. Like where where approximately do you think the line is? Probably like sixty to seventy percent. So right. I would definitely be tempted to three bet here uh, as a squeeze, just because. Five. Yeah, I mean into four or five players. Yeah. Possibly, but I mean, if you think his range is sixty or seventy percent of hands, and that he's not going to like really get out of line in four bet bluffing you, then I think this is actually a pretty clear three bet if his range is really that wide. Uh, well, there's actually something there's something Will said that actually makes me think three betting might not be as good as I would have thought, which is that you think that people who are calling him in position are playing a little bit scared and maybe have some stronger hands that yeah. you know they themselves might. So it's not like a typical oh, squeeze spot like where it's not the undergun the undergun uh, player I have to worry about. I have to worry about other players flatting uh, in position behind, who may have a stronger holding. And I didn't want to blow the pot, when I, especially when I'm holding nine high, even if I can represent I've got a big holding myself. Because even if he right. does hold under the gun, I'm sure one of the other players, you know, in position are going to call with any kind of pair, any kind of big ace themselves who who have flatted him. Um, disguising the strength of their hand, and I'm going to find it very tricky to play out of position to a, one of the better players who play more cautiously and quite more more nitty, if you like. Right. I mean, I would definitely only want to be three betting if I thought I was going to be taking the pot down pre-flop a significant percentage of the time. I definitely didn't think I would take it down, even if I got the undergun raises to fold. I don't think I would have got one or two of, of the other players uh, to, to fold their hand because there was at least three callers, if not four callers, before me. Fair. So it's fairly uh, biggish bear and undergun. So I think at least one of them were calling me in position as well. So if they were trying to target the guy who, that they had in position under the gun raising, even if I got them to fold, they would then I would then be the new target that that, that they would have in position as well to to peel and seal flop and uh, take a flop, flop in position. So I didn't want to blow the pot with nine high uh, at that point into four or five players. So what what was like your and the under the gun player stack size? And do you remember the stack sizes of the people in position approximately? Yeah, I had about 85 uh, big blinds at the uh, start of the hand, I think. Okay, so what was the flop? And are, are there, the they're not, are there, they're not antis at this stage in the tournament, right? Uh, there were antis. No, there were antis. Okay, so uh, approximately like 15 big blinds in, in the pot, maybe 16, something like that? It would be a little bit more, so 15 plus the small blind plus the antis, so. Yeah, something like that, yeah. Yeah, yeah so like 
18. 17. Yeah. 17, 18. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so the flop was uh, 8, 7, 4 with two hearts. So I flopped the up and down with uh, 6, 9. Right. And um, I've, che- I've checked. I've checked the flop and the actions on the un- uh, original razor. So, so do you, in on this type of board, do you think you have a donking range? I'm never taking the donk lead into five players. I want to see the action. Um, that, that can't perform me effectively. Just see see what the other players do in the hand. See the action that, that plays out. I'm probably never folding to one bet uh, when I call with the hand like six nine and flop the up and down with seven eight on the board. Uh, I'm, I'm never folding uh, to one bet. Um, so I'm always going to majority of the time, like ninety ninety percent plus of the time, I'm always going to be checking here, especially to the undergun raise. I'm never taking a donk lead, and then for him to raise raise it and 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 to isolate if, if you like. Uh, effectively represent uh, uh, an overpair, and then I'm playing a hand out of position. Then even if I flat call there, or if I make a move there, then I know I need to get lucky if, if he's going to snap me off, uh, representing a big pair. Or even if even if I just peel and, and then see the turn, I blow to the pot unnecessarily. And then uh, if I, if I brick the turn and he shoves, what do I then do? So I don't want to put myself in that kind of uh, position. So I'm, I'm never going to take the donk lead, especially into five players on that board with just nine high. Well, yeah, yeah. I, I I meant more not like with this exact hand, but do you have do you think like a range of hands that you might be donking here, or other specific hands that you would imagine that you would donk uh, this type of board? For myself, I don't I don't usually take the donk lead nine to five players uh, on. I yeah. know whether I'm talking about the specific hand with the nine high or not. I don't usually take the donk lead when I'm out of position. I like to check my option just to see the action that, that goes around to see who's doing what, who would bet, who, and then if there's any any uh, re-raise, uh, if there's any bet in a race uh, before me, then then I can reassess. So I like to see the action of other players to see what other players are doing in the hand, what they what kind of hands they're representing, and their kind of ranges. So um, yeah, majority of the time I'm always going to be checking it. Okay, so you check. Uh... And then what does the under the gun player do? Uh, he bets like two thirds of the pot. Okay, so he bets like twelve Jack. bigs. Yeah, he bets two thirds of the pot. Uh, everyone else folds, and it folds uh, folds back to me. All right, so under the gun bets out two thirds pot. Everyone folds, and you're sitting, you know, with just over seventy bigs. So did you consider raising the flap here? Uh, what do you think? You know, I know he's got a a wide range preflop, but when he bets into five people on the flop, how do you think that's affecting his range? And do you think that uh, it's going to be better to play this as a call or as a race? Because I agree that we should never be folding here. I think clearly on that flop, he's uh, representing he has an overpair to the board. He's trying to shut it down. It's it's a scary board in terms of straight draws, flush draws there. Uh, So I think he's willing to make a big bet there. He'd take a stab at the pot just to take it down. He didn't want to make a small bet and people would just call him light with bottom pair or or peel in position with two overguards. So I think he's making a big bet there to try and shut it down and take down the pot. Uh, So he wasn't expecting uh, anyone to call, obviously, with the hand that we know that he has. Um, you know, he'd have to shut it down, obviously, and win the pot there and then without uh, having to play um, play down the streets. Um, so hence, hence why, why his bet there. Um, but I thought I had to give him credit. I was out, A, I was out of position when it folds to me. Uh, I didn't want to blow the pot because I'm obviously just holding nine high at the time. Uh, I wanted to get to see, like, the turn of the river. Um, a, to either get there uh, with my hand and so obviously, obviously yeah, beat him in the pot or try and get to the river and maybe um, do, a, do a check call, check call move from the flop and turn and then take the donk lead and maybe set him in and represent so many more hands uh, on the river 
uh, to try and get him off one pair if he did have an overpair to the board. So that's what I was thinking rather than check raising at any point on flop or turn because if he didn't have a strong holding like an overpair to the board, then he's never folding. And then I've got eight, eight outs and I have to get there. So, so so how often he so he's clearly representing the overpair when he bets out there. Yeah. How often do you think he actually has the overpair there? And do you think when he is bluffing, do you think he's cognizant of picking like better bluffs like gut shots and straight draws and flush draws or like what do you, what do you think his range outside of the actual overpairs he has there looks like? Well, I'm thinking he, well, he's trying he's trying to uh, shut it down and represent to to the opponent that he's got an overpair. The fact that he's raised under the gun. He's trying to show strength there that he had, that he has an overpair. So he's try, probably trying to induce a call for someone who's hit the flop, someone who's got top pair, somebody who may have a flush draw or, or bottom pair and inside straight draw and that kind of thing, uh, or middle pair and and, and or a gut shot or whatever. Um, so yeah, he's trying to represent that he has an overpair and get some value from like inferior hands. But uh, little do we know that, that he doesn't have an over overpair later down the streets. <laughs> well, so if you if he had a hand like. Do you think he would be opening a hand like, let's say, a ten suited, uh, under the gun pre-flop? He could do, yeah, it's possible. If do you think he would be, you know, leading that out on this flop, or would would he decide that that's not strong enough for what is, you know, because I agree that he is representing an overpair here, so he might decide not to bet out a hand like a ten suited because he's sort of overrepresenting what he has and is probably only to get called by. Better, but do you think he's thinking on those lines, or do you think he would bet a hand like a ten suited on this flop? I think ninety nine percent of the time he would definitely bet. If he's opened on the gun with eight ten and he's hit top bet on the board, he's never folding his hand, he's never checking his hand. I think he's always going to be betting out unless he unless he was uh, short and he fancied check raising all in uh, with top pair and just went for it. Um, so no, I think if he if he's raised with a hand like eight ten, then he's definitely going to be um, see betting that flop, especially when he's hit top pair. Okay, and then so do you think? If you raised him, do you think he would call with eight ten here? If he had eight ten, yeah. If he had a hand like eight ten, you oh, know, no. sort of like a a top pair with weak kicker type hand, with a flush draw as well. No, no, not necessarily with a flush draw. Let's say without a flush draw for now. Well, even if he's got a backdoor flush draw with top pair, I don't think he's folding to one bet to one raise. Okay, so that's that's definitely evidence against raising. Uh, what if he had? Do you think if he had a hand like ace queen or ace jack preflop? Do you think he's bluffing uh, into four other people on this flop? Uh, I think he'd see bet a majority of flops anyway. <coughs> Maybe he would play a bit more cagey if he did have a hand like ace queen on that kind of board because that that board hits a lot of uh, other players' ranges uh, in terms of their calling ranges preflop. Um, so maybe he wouldn't bet out so much with ace queen uh, in, in that spot, our position. But then again, he had raised under the gun, and so he's going to be repping an overpay all day long, regardless of his holding. Okay, so, and then I well, last question on that. I would assume if he was betting out with a hand like ace queen race jack, he would fold to a raise here. Yeah, like he's not crazy. Okay, so that kind of sets us on good footing to discuss what to do here. Yeah. So, so from what I've heard, it sounds like this should. We should be check raising really wide here, with with good bluffing candidates. Because if he's opening sixty, seventy percent of hands under the gun, and he's c betting a large percentage of those hands, that means most of the hands he's betting out on this board, he's going to be folding to a raise, right? Yeah. Well, I think that's true. I guess. Speaking, yeah. to, to be to be honest, I'm 
I'm not necessarily thinking of this player holding like 60 or 70% of hands because that includes like some really awful hands. Like, let's let's for the sake of discussion, like treat it more like he's opening like a very wide range, like wider than he should be, but maybe not. No, 60, I mean, he receives 70% of hands in general, not under the gun. Not yeah, so under the gun, gun, under the gun, let's say he's got more like 35% of hands, which is like insanely wide for under the gun, but mm-hmm. okay, uh, yeah. yeah. 60-70% was like his hands in general that he was playing. I see. Okay. Opening. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a tough spot to me because I'm not used to like under the gun players like betting out like a huge range into five people, uh, potentially holding like 35% of hands and not folding, you know, a hand like 8-10 on this board to a check raise. So that already sort of puts me a little outside of my comfort zone. But I'll just point out sort of what I see as like the value of raising versus the value of calling. In terms of the value of calling, it's definitely lower variance. When we hit our hand, we will get paid. Uh, we we can still apply pressure on later streets if we think he's going to be betting the turn at a high frequency as well. Uh, when we do miss, because we have enough behind that we can make a realistic turn check raise that has good fold equity. Mm-hmm. I would I would think that raising would be slam dunk here if he was going to fold hands like top hair. But if he's not, then that makes up a, a large part of his range. And if he's not folding a hand like that, then he, he probably also has hands like 9-10 suited for you know a better open-ended straight. And even though like we, we don't want those hands to call because you know even though we might be able to get them to fold on the turn, it's going to be tough to fire a turn barrel on a blank, and we, we don't have that hand at showdown. So I think it's pretty close. I wouldn't blame you for doing either. Uh, I'll be interested... So, will we normally go back and actually look at the hand using software and try and uh, improve on our intuition and make at least some set of assumptions that leads us to a correct answer? So, we'll have an answer, but I think at this point, a call or a raise both seem reasonable to me, given what we've said about this villain. Yeah, I mean, Jack, I know you're looking at the software this week. My my intuition says that, you know even with a range much smaller than what I was thinking of before, like 35% of hands, um, if he's folding, you know, if he's betting out the majority of his hands for this sizing and folding all of his hands that aren't, you know, draws and top pair plus, I I still feel like this is a pretty slam dunk spot to be check raising wide as a bluff. Um, Just because, you know, 9-6 has such little showdown value it's going to be hard to play out of position. And I, I, you were saying like, if we do hit, we're going to get paid, but because his range is so wide and everyone else folded, like I, I don't think we're necessarily going to get paid. I think most of the time when he bets out here, he has bluffs because he's betting out most of his hands. So, well, when I say we're going to get paid, well, if he's betting out mostly bluffs here, then I think we will get paid because on later streets, you know, the player who's bluffing extremely wide on the flop is likely going to be bluffing extremely wide on the turn in the river, especially if he was betting extremely wide into five way and now we're heads up and we've showed, you know, not a ton of strength by just calling in the big blind and then calling on this flop. I think it is likely that he's going to be barreling. Especially uh, over cards to the board and he's then connected with the board on the, on the turn or river, then he's definitely going to be uh, stacking off or at least barreling uh, again on turn or river. And, and we have then have the option uh, being first to act on turn or river. If, if the board breaks out, and it all comes low cards, and you put them on a hand like ace high, uh, then you can turn, effectively turn your hand into bluff, clearly a bluff, and then uh, try and put the pressure on him by making a big bet on the river, play a stop and go, 
and then obviously get into the fold a hand like ace high. Yeah, that's another thing about calling against a player like this is that when he checks back the turn, like we can be pretty sure that he's got absolutely nothing. Yeah. And so then we've got a really great river bluff if we if we do call and that happens. Exactly. Yeah. So you you got yeah. control there and you stay in control and you can then play the stop and go on the river if you like. Mm-hmm. And try and try and take the hand away from him rather than check raising there, getting called and then having to shove and then if he does if you do get called then you know you need to <coughs> you know you need to get there. <coughs> okay. So we'll 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 come up with a more conclusive answer uh in the end of the analysis that we'll do later, but what did you do here? It sounds like you were leaning towards a call. Uh, when he bet the flop? Yeah. Yeah, when he bet the flop, uh, action folded to me, and I just called um, I, I just called his bet on the flop. Okay. What was the turn? Well, so just to recap for the listeners, the board is 8-7-4 with two hearts, and uh, he bet out, what, like, uh, like 12 big blinds, well, called, so the pot's 42 big blinds with, like, about 60, 60 behind. Yeah. Okay, yeah. And, and so uh, what was the turn? So I called, uh, turn was the 10 of diamonds. And bring oh, in nice. Two hearts and two diamonds on the board. So I got the turn, the second nuts. Jack nine would be the effective nuts here, or the absolute coconuts, as I like to say. So I've, uh, I've got the monkey nuts <laughs> on the turn. Um, so yeah, uh, t- t- turn, the, turn the straight. And I decided uh, to check to him again. Yeah, I mean, I think we definitely have to be checking here uh, since his his range is so wide and we want him to take another stab at this pot. Do you think yeah. this is the type of card that he continues barreling with a lot of his range? Like if let's say he had a hand like uh, a heart draw. Yeah. If he has got something like ace king, ace queen of hearts or ace king, ace queen of diamonds and he's now picked up two overcuts with the nut flush draw, he's 100% barreling here to try and shut it down um, without having get having to get to the river. Yeah, this is sort of a... a n- a somewhat neutral card, maybe slightly better for Will's range. I think, like most players, it would be much better for Will's range. But yeah. against this player, I think it's a, a bit more neutral, uh, considering the frequency with which he is betting the flop. Uh, and, and going into his mind, if he's thinking I'm calling him with top pair here, he's going to try and put in a big bet to try and get me off top pair now that an, an overcard has come uh, on the board, even though it's just a ten. Yeah, I think that's probably true. I think a a more logical player under the gun would probably realize that a lot of your top pair hands just turn two pair uh, or not a lot, but a, a, enough. Plus you would have some nine, 10 that would turn top pair an open ender or like seven. Plus nine. yeah, you yeah. would have, you would likely have Jack nine, six, nine, but I don't think this player is thinking like that based on everything we've said. So yeah, I expect him to bear a lot. So I definitely, you know, I think checking here is clearly, clearly the right decision. So what did, yeah. did he bet? Side check, and then he bets uh, just over half pot. Okay, so so he bets like twenty five, like twenty twenty five bigs, uh, and we've got like sixty behind. Yeah. Hmm. So this this is, you know, it's tough. You've only played with a guy for hour, hour and a half, but it really just depends on what his river bluffing frequencies are. You know, like I think it against a lot of players uh when they double barrel here they're likely having a hand that has like significant equity in the form of a draw or in the form of like you know an overpair plus that will make sense to check raise for value but if this Mm -hmm. player is bluffing a ton which we think he is and going to bet 
almost all of his brick draws on the river, well, then we kind of want it's higher variance, but we kind of want to call and just, you know, play play almost our entire range against him as a bluff catcher. Sure, but I think if I just flack all there and I'm out of position and there's so many more scare cards to come uh, on the river, one card to, to a stray, which effectively just kills my action, or it comes a, another heart on the river or another diamond on the river, which could kill it, kill the action if he has got an overpair and got a big hand like that. So I want to get paid. I want to get uh, my chips in good, definitely here on the turn, uh, on that kind of board, knowing what I'm 99% sure that I'm ahead and trying to get him to call. Uh, with a hand like an over pair or top pair or, or, or even a set or, or some kind of combo two pair uh, that got there. Uh, so obviously um, the fact that he bet the flop and bet the turn, he's shown strength in, the hand, in his hand that he does have a good holding. Um, so I want to get my chips in good there with uh, knowing I've got the best hand there with two flush draws, two, uh, two straight draws there. Uh, I thought I'd just get it in. Once he's bet the turn, I think it was a no-brainer for me just to get it in to get maximum value for my hand without... Uh, trying to play at 2kg. I think if we're, if we're a lot deeper, I think the hands play differently. I might flat call and then opt to either check raise or take the donk lead on the river. Uh, but with the stack sizes then, at that point, once he bets the turn, I think I just have to get it in there. Just just uh, jam it in there and give him the sweet ring and then try and get him to uh, to call with whatever hand he has because I know I'm 99% sure I've got him beat. Uh, do you think he's calling with flush draws here? I, I have to think for a second if uh, he's got the right price. Uh, so if, if you, if you sh- yeah. I mean, if you shift for sixty, then he's calling forty to win, uh, like one hundred twenty. So not well, quite. Only, like you said, he's bet twenty five bigs, and I shift for sixty. He's not folding for thirty five more. Okay. Well, yeah. over- so I guess he's not folding like ace king of diamonds, ace queen of diamonds, ace queen of hearts. He's he's never folding two overs and a flush draw. He he could put me on like top pair and and a straight draw him himself. Uh, so he, he'll probably think he's behind, obviously, but he, he's probably want to gamble in that spot with two overcars and a flush draw, especially he's led the flop and led the turn. Once I've check-raised all in, then I, I, don't, I don't think he's folding at all with a hand like Ace-King of Hearts or Ace-King of Diamonds. So I guess the main part of the range here that we're sort of concerning ourselves with is uh, we're sort of balancing three things. There's part of his range that might barrel the, barrel the river but would fold to... A raise here, and we're saying that doesn't include like very strong draws. Like over so Yeah, so we're very. Uh, hands, yeah. And then there's a a portion of his range, you know, that that would get there on certain river cards, uh, and there's also a portion of his range that would call a check raise here, but would check back on the river, and that might include like one pair of hands. Uh, like a hand like you sort of weird hands like ten nine that turned uh turned a pair here and decides to bet and then checks back the river. I mean that seems likely to me. So it's sort of a balancing act. I think in terms of like hand protection and taking like a lower variance line, uh that could also be the highest DV line, like shipping makes sense to me. Uh but I think it's just gonna be another spot where we're gonna have to kinda look more closely at this range to come out you know, with the truth, since he's playing so many hands here that it's kind of hard to estimate, you know, as it would be in other, you know, spots where we're check-raising the turn and expecting him to call and fold with some of his range. Yeah, I mean, I think a, a lot of it is just about bluffing frequency. So, like, with that 35%, you know, assumption we're starting with of his under-the-gun raising range and then that he's c-betting most of that range, I think if he continues to to bet most of the range he got with on the turn... 
this is a slam dunk call. But you have to also assume he is betting the river. That's what I was going to say. Yeah, if, if if he continues that kind of thing of like betting most of his hands on each subsequent street, then I think this is a slam dunk call. I think against most players, this is a slam dunk check raise. So it's really just about you know the assumptions we're making about a players like this bluffing frequencies. And you know I, I don't really play in tournaments to the degree that you do well, but mm. generally from cash, like even when you're playing with kind of you know looser, crazier opponents. I find that their bluffing frequencies generally go down, not like proportionally a little bit on each street, but like a lot, you know, like some players are willing to be super loose pre and then like somewhat loose on the flop. But there's very few players that just kind of go crazy on each subsequent street. And I think that that kind of lends itself more towards, you know, raising it in here to get value uh, from a range of, you know, high equity draws and, and made hands. Definitely. I think when he raised the turn in this spot, he was he was showing a lot more strength then than than he was on the on the flop. If you were thinking, oh, he's just going to be c betting any flop, you could you can you can see that from from uh, you know his range and number of hand he's opening with and his betting frequency etc. But when he bets the turn and we're heads up and he's in position to me when he has the option to check and he still bets that turn, he's showing strength there that he does have a good holding that he has better than top pair if you like from that the way the betting action has gone a pre flop post flop you know on the, on the flop and turn. So when he makes the big bet there and he bets a half pot and he's bet effectively 25 bigs, uh, as Jackson has said, and I've, and I've, only got, I've got 60 behind, um, I think there's little, there's little point there in just flat calling. There's so many more scare cards to come on the river for me to take the donk lead to get value from my hand. There's so many like one card straight uh, straightening cards that can get there. There's so many like, um, you know, flush, flush draws that can get there. There's so many bad cards that can get there. If he has got a hand like jacks, queens, kings, uh, could be like not, uh, even if he has got jacks or queens, for example, that he's, that he's repping or big open pair, comes an ace or king, could be an action killer. There's so many action killer cards that can come on the river if I just flag call and try and play a stop and go, uh, or even uh, yeah, like to take take the donk lead or, or check to him. I think he's if he has got a uh, overpair to the board, I don't think he's going to be barreling river to turn his hand to, into a bluff if he thinks he has showdown. Um, so hence the reason why when when he makes that bet on the turn, I think he's either improved on the turn. With a bigger draw, like um, ace king, ace queen of diamonds, um, some hand, some hand like that, or, or or hearts, you know, two overs and a flush draw, or ace jack suited with with a two overs and a gutter ball and a flush draw. Now, when the ten comes on the turn, so there's so many kind of like combo draws there that I've got to protect my hand against uh, uh, with, and also get maximum value from my hand at that point when I'm 99% sure I've got the best hand uh, with the turn straight. So hence why I went for the uh, check raise there for value. Uh, the fact that he bet turn I thought w- was strong from him. Uh, that he's representing now that he has a strong hand even though on the on the flop he, he could have been c betting light but he now has a strong holding once he bets a turn i thought now would be the great time to check race to get maximum value uh from the hand in this instance so that's why i opted to uh, to go for the check race okay well, when you did check raise did you just you know let him to his own thoughts and you know quietly will wait his decision uh definitely not i have to go to him said this is where my speech play comes in <coughs> when i want to get paid i mean the whole point of speech is like to get your opponent to, uh, to call with the worst hand and to fold the best hand so in this instance i was 99 percent sure i had the best hand here so i'm trying to convince him uh i'm like semi-bluffing here with some kind of combo draw with a pair and a straight draw a pair straight draw flush draw for example uh that i'm willing to take down because a lot of players would would um play it that way if they did have some big combo draw like pair straight draw flush draw they would check raise to tr- either try and shut it down there and then or if not they've got a whole bunch of outs if they get called by uh by a one pair hand 
Um, so yeah, I wanted to give him that impression that I was check raising with that kind of combo, combo hand, and to let him call me light, whether he had you know top pair, two pair, or whatever. I was confident my, my straight was good at this point because um, I got the, the second nuts effectively. So I'm trying to give him the speech here effectively to call um, because he looked, he was slumped back in his chair and he's thinking, I'm gonna about. It. He never snap called. Obviously, he seemed like he had a decision. He wasn't Hollywooding like he was uh, thinking about folding, or he had absolute air like ace high. He genuinely looked like he had a decision. So I've now got to do my best and my utmost to try and convince him that he has the best hand to get him to call off uh, his whole stack, pretty much, um, against uh, against the straight that I had with whatever holding he had. So I tried to get engage in conversation with him uh, to find out the strength of his holding and try and convince him that he has the best hand. So what, what are the types of things you're doing when you're, you know, obviously, you know, you, you don't want to give too much away in case any of your future opponents listen to this podcast. But, like, you know, for... For me, I, I didn't watch that much of the World Series of uh, Poker main event coverage this year, but you know I noticed that in in the two big hands that you were involved in, you know one as a bluff and one where you were goading someone for value, you know I at least from just like a cursory glance, I didn't notice much difference between them. So like, what are the different types of things you're thinking about or that you're comfortable sharing that you're doing when you're trying to induce a call versus you know induce a bluff, and how much does that change for each player? Yeah, I try to mix it up. I try not to do the same thing when I'm trying to get them to call or say the same thing when I'm trying to get them to fold because I think the better players will pick up on that <coughs> and use that information against me uh, and that, that could could, could uh, counteract against me and uh, not be so beneficial in the long term against the better players because they'll know exactly what, what I'm saying in, in, uh, in certain situations. So I've got to mix it up in, in certain sports, but I think in generally against playing against recreational players, um, I find it fairly straightforward for me to convince them uh, to call when, when they got the uh, worst of it and convince them to fold when they got the best hand. Uh, so just something that's come naturally uh, to me over the years, something I've, I've always practiced uh, and been confident about, um, you know, even giving away the strength of my hand. I might be talking a lot and um, effectively telling my opponent what I have, but at the same time, I'm getting valuable information from my opponents and how they're reacting from their body language and how they uh, respond to my line of questioning as to the strength of their holding, and then I can manipulate them uh, to call or to fold depending depending on the, the strength of their hand and my hand uh, and, and the board texture at the time. Um, so in this instance against uh, this gentleman who's obviously uh, barreled the flop and turn and once I've checked raised and he's slumped back in his chair, the, the decision's on him. But once we're heads up and apart, you can say what you like, even about the strength of your hand. So now I'm trying to convince him to call because he's umming and ahhing. He doesn't know what to do. He's not sh- not sure if he's got the best hand or not. At this moment in time, I don't know what he has. Uh, I'm putting him on, on an overpair from the way he's played this um, played this hand through. Uh, I think if he, if he has a set, then he 100% would have snap called by now. I think if he's, if he's got any two pair, I think he, he's got a call call as well uh, from way, from the way I played this hand to check raise the turn. Just looks like I'm on, I'm on some pair combo straight draw flush draw kind of hand. Um, so I think he would have called by now. So I think I've put him down to a one pair hand, whether it's an overpair or top pair. So I've got to try to get the confirmation of this from him, try and ascertain what kind of holding he has, and then give him the necessary speech to effectively call me lie and convince him he has the best hand and I'm on I'm on some kind of combo draw myself and I'm willing to gamble because it's level six of the tournament and we can still uh, late reg and re-enter the tournament. Uh, so I'm willing to gamble at this point. So that's why I'm trying to give him that kind of like impression that I've got a weaker holding than I actually have uh, to conv- convince him he has the best hand to call off lie. So that was the aim of the whole speech at that point. Did so did he tell you what he had? Yeah, did it work out? 
<coughs> it definitely worked out. Yeah, I said, oh, well, what do you have? I said, oh, I think I've got the best hand here. I think, oh, if you had the best hand, you'd have called by now. So I must have you be. I deserve to win this spot from this speech alone. Yeah, no need to be a hero. So I'm doing the reverse psychology kind of thing. No need to be a hero. Let me win this hand. I'm sure I got the best hand and, and everything. And he, he opened up and says, oh, I, I put you on a big draw. I said, well, if you, if you put me in a draw, you must have the best hand then, right? If you've got the best hand, you got to call. Because oh, I don't know if I want to gamble. I said, what do you want? Depends what you have. Tell me what you got, and I tell you what you need to call. And uh, he goes, oh, well, I got a big hand here. I think I've got a decision. I think, well, I improve on the turn. I said, well, I improve on the turn as well. So I said, it's absolutely cooler then, isn't it? Yeah. So if both we improve on the turn, it's a cooler. But if you think you got the best hand, you got to call. I think if you had the best hand, you would have called by now. You no need, no need to be a hero. Um, get my chips in good. But tell me what you got, and I'll tell if I want you to call. Depending on what you have is whether I want you to call or not. So obviously, I know I've got the best hand at this point when he when he's tanking. So I know 100% I've got him crushed. Um, but giving him the speech and uh, to let him know, uh, well, it depends on what, what what your hand is. You may have me beat. Well, tell me what you got, and I'll tell if I want you to call, depending on the strength of your hand. And he said, oh, he's hit he's uh, hit the turn. He's got top pair on the turn. I said, what? You, you hit the turn. You, you raised pre-flop, bet the flop in the turn. Now you hit the 10. I said, what's your kicker? He goes, oh, I've got a good kicker with it. I said, what, king 10, something like that, queen 10? He goes, yeah, king 10. I said, oh, big hand. Well, I've got king 10. Well, you can't pass now, can you? He you know, said, big hand. I'm willing to gamble anyway. I've, I've got a big hand myself. I'm willing to gamble. You might be you might be ahead if you've got uh, king 10. Then um, we've got to go for it. There's only 10 minutes left of late reg and re-entry. We could both re-enter. Um, but one of us can re-enter anyway. One of us will have a big stack. So I'm willing to gamble with this hand. If you call, uh, then, then then I've got outs. If you fold, I could, I could, I could take the pot down now. Effectively, so I'm explaining him exactly a, a statement of fact, if you like, <laughs> the exact situation, even though I'm 99% sure I'm going to take the pot down regardless of what happens. Um, but obviously, I don't want to let him know that. So I'm trying to convince him that I've got a weaker hand than I have. I say I'm willing to gamble with this hand to let him know that I've got some kind of uh, pair, straight draw, flush draw, combo draw, and that his top pair king kicker is good. Um, but once he's bet the flop and turn, I, he's like saying, no, I think I've got the right price. And I said, I oh, can't, let's, ga- let's gamble. Come on, let's gamble. I'm all in. You might be ahead. Let's gamble. And eventually, eventually uh, uh, he calls and uh, I'll show the 6-9 for the straight. And he goes, ah, oh, he didn't want to show his hand. He felt embarrassed to show his hand. He turns over King-10. King-10 suited. And uh, yeah, that's it. And he's drawing dead. And, and, I, and I'm on the hand. And he shook my hand. He said, oh, uh, yeah, you confused me there. I, I can't believe it. I shouldn't have called there. But uh, you confused me and got me to call. So well done. And he shook my hand and walked off. That's fun. So, yeah. So, so let let's say you had like a six of hearts there. What? How would? What would? What would you? How would you differ? What you say to this guy? Uh, well, if if I check raise all in with the what with a gut shot and lower end gut shot and enough flush draw and yeah. overcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, Where you want? What would I? What would I have said if I check raise the turn with that kind of hand? Yeah. What are the? Okay. And, and he tells you he has king ten. Yeah. Like, then I'm I'm definitely going to be convincing him that I have him beat. And that 100%, I want him to call. If you got one pair, you're drawing dead. I come with a lot more stronger statements to convince him to call, uh, convince him to fold uh, a lot more of the time uh, than I would uh, convince him to call. Obviously, uh, I've got outs if he does call, but obviously, I'd rather shut it down then. And when I've just got ace high for pretty much my tournament life, uh, I'd be convincing him to fold, uh, making much stronger statements uh, that I got one pair beat, uh, kind of thing. 100%, I want him in. Uh, you're drawing dead if you got one pair. That, those those kind of things um, to make him look silly. That if he does call with one pair, he's drawing dead. Um, so uh, oh, I don't want to mug you off. Listen, you're a nice guy. I'm keeping it friendly. You phone show, I show. One pair is no good. If you go broke, hundred percent. If you if you call off here one pair, I thought you were stronger than that. I thought you had two pair. Uh, if you got one pair, you're drawing dead. I've got a set. 
I want, I want you to call. So that kind of thing. So I'll say that, put that kind of thought process in his mind. I don't want to mug him off. The whole table's heard what I had to say. He's going to see the hand anyway. If he phone shows, I'll show kind of thing. Keeping it friendly. He's my neighbor. He's a nice guy. You don't need to call up one pair. Just fold your hand. You're going to see it anyway. You fold your one pair, I'll show you a set. That kind of thing. So you convince him and get into his mind and manipulate him that he's going to see it anyway. He doesn't need to hear a call here because he's convinced, you've convinced him now that you're going to show him a set. Um, so if he folds and shows his one pair, you're going to show him a set. So he doesn't need to call. He's going to fold there. And then, then obviously I'll show him, uh, show him the ace high, uh, which will obviously create more action in, in uh, future pots uh, <laughs> that we play together. Uh, on the <laughs> so yeah, that, that's yeah, what for I sure. And what, speaking hypothetically, just generally along the lines, that's how I would have uh, given him the speech like differently to when I'm holding 9-6 and had, had this straight on the turn. Awesome. Yeah, so Will, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. This was an interesting hand discussion. I don't think we've ever gone this in-depth in terms of speech play. Uh, if people want to learn how to you know, incorporate this goading and uh, what some haters might call taunting into their own game, where can, they, where can they find out tips and tricks and just to generally know what's going on in your life? Yeah, you can follow, follow me on social media. Um on facebook it's uh william kasuf uh, on on twitter i'm at william kasuf i've got my own uh, website recently uh willkasuf.com so check that out for all latest videos and, and podcasts and all uh, my bio uh, biography everything about me uh all the videos and everything and links are all up there uh, so check me out on uh, facebook twitter and and uh, my own website willkasuf.com <laughs>